And um, as you turn your Bibles there, I do want to let you know if you need it, there is Wi-Fi now. And if you need the password, just, uh, uh, I can't give it to you right now, but I, we do have Wi-Fi now. Since there's no signal up here for phones, I know a lot of you use your cell phone apps to read the Bible. Um, so if you need the password, uh, maybe lean back there and talk to Jesse. It's on the side of the router back there, Jesse. Actually, I could tell you it's 9AAB2966. I don't know. There it is. When you're an engineer, you can't remember people's names. Uh, you can't remember people's faces. Uh, sometimes you can't remember like what your wife told you an hour ago, but you can remember random numbers and letters like nobody's business. 9AAB2966. There you go. So in chapter 2 of Daniel, if you'll remember with me, Daniel is a young man, uh, probably just a little bit older than someone who would, would have been bar mitzvahed. Uh, he's now a man in the eyes of the Jewish culture, uh, 13, and everybody believes that he's either you know, somewhere around 13 to 20. Uh, I've read Daniel for years and never realized he was that young. Uh, but we have very little expectations, I think, in our culture for folks that are in these ages from 14 to 20. You know, they're, they're kids, and we let them be kids, uh, when really they should be doing adult things. They should be growing up. Um, but that said, here we are with Daniel. He's 13 to 20. He's uh, lived in a nation called Israel, and the nation of Israel has been disobedient to the commands of the Lord. They're breaking his covenant. They're worshiping other gods. Um, they've fallen prey to uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life because they didn't heed the warning of their God. And God had set them apart as a nation, uh, called out of an idolatrous nation, to be different than the rest of the world, to reveal his character to the world that they lived in. And because they were disobedient, the Lord, who disciplines whom he loves, uh, sends them to a spiritual timeout. But for them, it's not just a spiritual timeout, it's a very physical timeout. And so he allows their enemies which we've been reading about in Deuteronomy, if you're doing the Bible study together, he allows their enemies no longer to uh, be defeated by them or by him for them, but he allows their enemies to conquer them. And if you read scripture in the Old Testament, you're ever confused about like, why would God let an ungodly nation uh, discipline and even overtake his godly nation that he set up? Uh, know this, that he uses them to discipline them, but at the same time, later on, he conquers them as well. He judges them as a nation. And so the judgment of God is perfect, and he can use any instrument he wants. And when his own people will not obey him, he'll use the ungodly to judge the righteous. And judgment uh, in, the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and in the New begins in the house of the Lord, because we're accountable to the truths we've been shown. So in Daniel chapter 2, uh, Daniel has already, at this point, shown himself to be different than all of the others that were put into this training program to be in the cabinet or the advisors of Daniel, or excuse me, of Nebuchadnezzar. And because they've shown themselves strong, basically by being obedient to the Lord, using his gifts to glorify him, uh, the king starts to look through all of his candidates for people to be his advisors, and he finds out that Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are 10 times better than anyone else in this uh, training program. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar commends them. He places them as rulers in his kingdom. He gives them uh, influence in the greatest kingdom in the entire world at that time. And so even though they're gods, uh, they only follow one god, he doesn't care because they've shown themselves to be great servants. And so Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 has had a dream. He's been, he's been awake all night, and he's had this dream, and it troubles him greatly. And because it troubles him greatly, he asks all of his uh, minions, all of his, his servants, his cabinet, his advisors, he says, I want you to give me what I dreamed, and I want you to give me the interpretation. And so uh, they kind of balk, and they say, wait a minute, uh, it's been asked in the past that we would give an interpretation of a dream, but you want us to tell you what you dreamed. No man on earth can do such a thing. Well, they're right, aren't they? No one knows the thoughts and the intents of the heart except the Lord. And so here we have these Chaldeans, these uh, pagans, these sorcerers and uh, necromancers and you know, all these black magic type people, but they do understand one thing about the Lord. Uh, they, they understand at least that no man on earth can tell you what someone else has dreamed, but God can. Therefore, he says in verse uh, 10, no Lord or ruler has ever asked such a thing of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. And a Chaldean is just basically an ethnic Babylonian, someone that is of Babylonia, of this kingdom. And so he says no one's ever asked any of his uh, advisors to do such a thing. And because they once again went back to him and said, but can you just tell us the dream and then we'll interpret it? Because that'd be a lot easier. And the king says this, he says, if you don't tell me what I dreamed, and if you don't tell me the interpretation on top of that, I will tear you limb from limb and I will burn down your house. So there's a little pressure. You know, what are we going to do? Well, Daniel is one of the only ones that really doesn't panic What he does is he seeks his God. He talks to the one that always advises him about everything. It's not a knee-jerk reaction for him to panic because he knows God personally, and so he is confident that if the Lord wants to preserve his life for a few more years, that he's going to give him the ability to tell the dream and the interpretation. And so he answers the king with counsel and wisdom, according to verse 14. And he answers this man who has been sent to kill him. And he answers and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. He explains, hey, the king's had a bad dream. He's kind of on the warpath. You don't want to mess with him. If you can tell the interpretation and the dream, it would go well for you. And so uh, here's what happens. Daniel prays with his buddies, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And after they pray, the Lord reveals the vision to Daniel. And then they spend several verses here. It has recorded where they give thanks to God for the answer to prayer. And then in verse 24, it says, Daniel went to Arioch, having the answer at this point, whom the king had appointed to destroy them. And he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Instead, take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king, and notice what he says to the king. I 
I have found a man. Now, did he find this man? No. Daniel went to Arioch. Daniel was not found by this man, Arioch. But Arioch is a man of the world. And when he finds an answer, he doesn't say, hey, an answer was brought to me. He says, I have the answer, O king. He wants to show himself to be great. I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. So the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Remember, he had been renamed by the king to be Belteshazzar. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? So Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. Daniel very humbly and yet boldly states to the king, the place from which you normally draw wisdom has failed you. Your astrologers, your magicians, your horoscope, your fortune cookies, they've left you with no answers. But there is a God in heaven who does reveal secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. So this is where we stopped last week and I kind of left a, a cliffhanger. I stopped and I was like, to be continued. Now, I remember watching a lot of shows in the 90s, and it was like every week was to be continued. I'm like, what's going to happen on Full House? And I was waiting for the next episode, right? Now we have Netflix. We just binge watch for a whole week. you know. But my point is uh, I left you hanging for a reason. I was hoping you guys would go ahead and read the rest of it so you could see. He says, as for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed, about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. So he's like any other king or business owner or husband or wife. You know, like we wonder what's going to happen in the future. I hope you do. I hope you think past this moment. Because if you think past this moment, it's going to cause you to have a lack of answers. It's going to cause you, hopefully, to seek the God that you claim to follow. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is like any other king. He wonders what's going to be the end of his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar built his kingdom to last forever, by the way. There was more gold in Babylon during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar I than any other king has ever done. On the palaces, on the statues, there was gold leaf embedded into everything. When we read in chapter 3 about him building this statue of himself, it's not covered in gold. It's not dipped in gold. It is solid gold, and it's 90 feet tall. So this is the kind of wealth that's in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. So if that is in fact the case, when Daniel gives this, he's going to explain that King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is in the dream a kingdom of gold. So we'll get there. He says, while you were on your bed, you wondered what would come to pass after this, after today. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret, notice what he says here. This secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. Daniel says, 
God has not revealed this to me because I'm worthy to have it revealed to me. He's revealed it to me, he says, for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. God is trying to reveal to you, Nebuchadnezzar, the thoughts of your heart. This should be a humbling thing, because I think about this, and I'm like, Lord, reveal to me the the thoughts of my heart. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I don't know if I can handle that. I don't know if I could handle it if you were to take my heart and lay it bare. I'm not talking about the thoughts, but I'm talking about the intentions that I have for the things that I do. Many of us have things that we do that are very good, but if God would reveal to us our true intentions for doing those things, it might hurt. You know, many times the Lord reveals to me my thoughts and my intentions that no one else knows, and I'm embarrassed. I'm humbled. And we should be. But when we're humbled, it shouldn't cause us to feel condemned. It should cause us to worship even more. God, why would you even consider me? Why would you even reveal those things to me? I'm just a worm. I'm a maggot in the sight of God. I'm nasty. I'm filthy. I'm sinful. And yet this perfect God who loves us, why, I don't know, seeks to reveal himself to us and have relationship with us. And so, as we see this, that's what Daniel tells him. Before he ever tells him the dream, before he ever tells him the interpretation, he says, the God of heaven, the one true and living God. Babylon, they worshipped many gods, and King Nebuchadnezzar worshipped 13 of them himself. He had idols set up. He would make offerings to them. And what he's saying to him here is that even though you worship all these gods, none of those gods could save you or deliver you or give you answers, but there is a God, and he is the God, and he seeks to, to reveal himself to you. He who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be, and he's given me the dream and the interpretation that you may know the thoughts of your heart. God cares about Nebuchadnezzar. God cares about whatever you think is the most ungodly president we've had. God cares about him. God cares about Donald Trump. God cares about, uh, guess what? God cared about Hitler. God cares and reveals himself to everyone. It's just whether or not they're willing to receive what he has to say. He cares about the most ungodly people in your life. We see people and we go, we make judgments. We go, should I share the truth with them? Man, they're filthy. No way. And God doesn't do that. He is no respecter of persons. He didn't reveal himself to you because you had something to offer. He doesn't save us because we've done enough good versus our bad. He saves us basically because he cares and he loves everyone. He's not willing that any should perish. Not even Nebuchadnezzar, who was a very foul and violent man. So Daniel is going to give him the interpretation and the dream. Verse 31. He says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. I like that. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, 
its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became great mountain, excuse me, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. So this dream that he's been given, notice this. He speaks to him about this image that he saw in the dream. Now I think this is significant because Nebuchadnezzar was an idol worshiper. And I believe that God speaks to each one of us in ways that we'll understand. He speaks to me differently as a pastor and as an engineer than he might speak to you because of the things that you understand. He speaks to parents differently, I believe, than he speaks to people that don't have kids. Since having children, my children have said and done things, and because of that, while they're doing them, God reveals my own character to me through their fumbling around and misunderstanding things and doing things. He just does that. He's speaking to a pagan king who worships idols by showing him an idol. He shows him this image, this statue. And as he shows it to him, he speaks to him about the material that it's made out of. I find this interesting because in Isaiah, there's a passage where God speaks through Isaiah to the nation. He says, you know, because they're at the time worshiping idols. And he says, you take this tree, you cut it down, you section off this tree, one piece of the tree you carve into an idol, and the other part of the tree you put on your fire and you cook your dinner with it. Does this make any sense? And he talks to them, and he's saying things to them that they would understand. When he says things in here about this, this stone being hewn out of a rock and being thrown at and seemingly coming out of nowhere and hitting the base of this idol, this image, this statue, and the whole thing being crushed, then he uses a word that they will all understand. He says this statue is crushed and it's driven by the wind and blown away like chaff. Why does he say that? Because in their culture, you would go out and you would cut the wheat down or the barley and you would take it to the next process. You put it in a grinding mill and then they'd take the chaff and, and the grain and everything. They would throw it up in the air and most of these, these threshing floors would be on the top of a hill so there'd be a constant breeze and when they would pick up this chaff and the seed and everything that's been busted apart, the seed would fall to the floor and all the stalks and everything would blow away. So that's what God's doing. He shows this statue made out of all these materials. And then he shows this rock being hewn out of the mountain that hits the bottom. It's all crushed. And all of these kingdoms that are represented by these materials won't last. They're going to blow away. But I'm getting ahead of myself. He says there, this is the dream, verse 36, and now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. So verse 37, he says, You, O king, are a king of kings. He doesn't say the king of kings. He says you are a king of kings. He says, 
For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom. He's given you power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. So he describes the first portion of this statue, the head. He starts at the top and he goes down. The head, he says, is made of gold. Gold is a precious metal. But notice what else he says. He says, you are a king of kings. In his kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar was the only sovereign. It wasn't a king with a bunch of little kings below him. He was the only king. No one told Nebuchadnezzar what to do. At his whim, the kingdom did what he told them to do. And because of that, we see that his kingdom is unlike any other kingdom that we see today. Think about it. There's, there's no kingdoms anymore where there's not some sort of bureaucracy built into it. There's no one man doing anything. But then you also see that he says, um, notice this, you, O king, are the king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar probably thinks that he has amassed his wealth and built his kingdom all by himself. But in the scheme of God, God raises up kings and he takes kings down. Those who are in control, who have power and glory and majesty, they can only have it if God gives it to them. He is sovereign. He is in control. And every time in human history, God has been putting people in place. Now, we look at, and we, especially at the time of you know, voting for president or uh, counselors or whatever it might be, we always have this thought in our mind that God won't put in place anybody that's not godly. But that's not the case. God does that all the time. Every person that's been put in a place of authority has been put there by God. Whether you agree with that or not, that's what the Bible teaches. So, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, imagine this, your kingdom has been given to you by God. And wherever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, he's given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Now, remember, he's been wondering where this kingdom's going, how long it's going to last. And he's prepared it to last forever in some ways. But what we find out is that it won't last forever. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. I find this interesting. <laughs> it's inferior to yours. And then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. It's a strong metal. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the other kingdoms. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdoms shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw, iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. 
and the kingdom shall be not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, this is key, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And so he's given him the dream, and then he's given him the interpretation. So I just want to talk to you just a little bit about this statue and about this interpretation of the dream. The kingdom of Babylon was from 636 B.C. to 539 B.C. Then, after that, there was a kingdom that was inferior. I find it interesting that the kingdom that came after Babylon was inferior because even though it was inferior, it still consumed the kingdom of Babylon. It still overtook it. It overthrew it. Uh, Most of the time, I don't know about you guys, it seems to me that I think if one nation conquers another, it must mean that it's not inferior, but that it's better. Uh, But these kingdoms that are conquering each other, slowly, they, they don't get better. I find that interesting because what man's thinking says is that, hey, look at us. We're advancing. We're getting better. We're growing. We're becoming more powerful. We've got these tools. We've got these things that we're no longer fighting people with swords. We're no longer lining up on a battlefield like just happened down here within the last couple hundred years. We are now sending airplanes with no people in them to drop bombs. Genius. And yet in the eyes of God, we're becoming more and more inferior. Think about it. Everything that we do, we can now do quicker than we once did. We've got an advanced way to get to the end of things, which has actually not been improved at all. That's what Henry David Thoreau said. Now, I'm going to misquote him, but I'm going to try and quote him. Basically, what he said is, we've come up with quicker means, more advanced means, to get to an unimproved end. We've improved the way to get quicker to our unimproved end. We still all have this problem of death. And so, if that is in fact the case, we have these kingdoms conquering each other, and it gives the succession. I think it's interesting if we look at these kingdoms, because the first kingdom that we saw was Babylon, from 636 to 539, and it was a kingdom of gold. The second kingdom he talks about is a kingdom of silver, and it was the breastplate, and it was the arms. So it was like the authority's been divided, like the arms are divided. But it was only for a short time. It was a kingdom called Persia from 539 to 330 BC. An interesting tidbit is that this was a kingdom where you had to pay in. You had to pay taxes. And guess what they required you to pay for those taxes? Silver. You guessed right. So God's prophecy, this was told before these kingdoms, is being fulfilled even though men are making their own decisions. God sees it before it happens. The the third kingdom that overcomes Persia is a kingdom by the name of Greece. And it was headed up by a man by the name of Alexander the Great. And he used bronze. They had these bronze shields. It was the Bronze Age, if you will. Uh, Bronze had already been used, but at that time, their main armor was made out of bronze. And so the kingdom of Greece... 
I find it also interesting that the bronze in the Bible is always a type of judgment. The fourth kingdom that overcomes Greece is a kingdom by the name of Rome. Uh, And it was during the time of 63 B.C. to 475 A.D. So after that was a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, and it will smash and crush all previous empires, just like iron smashes and destroys. Now, I find that interesting because the Romans had their chariots and their chariot wheels. And what were they made out of? Iron. And the chariot was the, uh, it was the tank. It was the, you know, you go in and you have these horses pulling you. And if you've ever seen uh, Ben-Hur, the movie Ben-Hur, that's one of the things they would race. Um, so I find that interesting. All of these kingdoms were told about before they ever happened. I also find it interesting that as you see these kingdoms and you see their place on the statue, you see the longevity of them. But also notice that over time, gold goes to silver, which is a lesser metal, goes to bronze, and then goes to iron, and then the iron becomes mixed with clay. I find that interesting because uh, what happens to metals that are refined? Metals are refined by heat, right? They have to be uh, transformed by pressure and by temperature and by refining. And what they do to refine metals is they turn them up to a certain temperature. And when they turn them up to a certain temperature, all of the impurities in those metals come to a critical point and they float to the top. And then uh, my pastor used to work at Sunbeam Grills down in Arkansas. And he uh, said that he worked all night. He received the billets or whatever they were made out of metal. And then they'd put them in this furnace. They'd turn up the heat. They'd melt it down. And then he'd put on a spacesuit, essentially. And he'd go in there with a big old hook with lots of prongs on it. And when it was at the right temperature, he'd take all the dross, all the impurities off the top. And when he took the impurities off the top, they'd eventually get it to where it was pure enough to use for sunbeam barbecue grills. So... Metals are refined, but you know what happens to metals the moment you stop refining them? They start trying to go back to their original state again. It's why if you set a car out in a field and you leave it there for a certain amount of time, it eventually tries to turn back into dirt because those metals that were taken out of the dirt, over time, they're corroded, they're corrupted, and then they go back to rust. It's why we have to wax our cars and repaint them and do all these things to maintain them because metals on their own won't stain that way. Our bodies are the same way. Our bodies are, we can do things to preserve them, but eventually they return to the dust, the dust of the earth. And all of the kingdoms of men, no matter how superior they are to other kingdoms, they will eventually end. They cannot last forever. But what we see in this passage is that these kingdoms, though they fail, there will be one that will eventually last forever. And so he says there in this passage that there is all of a sudden, he says, um, well, let me not stop there. He says that the iron kingdom will mix with a clay kingdom. And I see that as a kingdom made out of alliances between men. Uh, Think about it. Uh, Even in the fiefdoms and all of the things in Europe, what has happened with the kingdoms? Those kingdoms have intermarried to create alliances with other kingdoms to extend their boundaries. 
Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, didn't marry into families to extend his kingdom. He just went in and destroyed things. And they said, okay, that's mine now. And they were like, hey, can we have representation? No, you can't have representation. But then as kingdoms have changed, what happened is instead of conquering them, they would go in peaceably, intermarry. They would have a daughter marry a, a son or whatever. And then that kingdom becomes part of the greater kingdom. So you can imagine that some of these would honor their alliances and some of them would not honor their alliances because it was based on the word of man, which changes depending on how men feel. And so these kingdoms are crumble, they, they crumble amongst one another and they don't stand. But notice that the foundation of this statue is built on iron and clay, these mixed materials that don't cause strength. And the best that we have to offer as men in our agreements with one another is iron and clay. And think about it. Uh, Everything is based on someone's word against another. And so here we have this kingdom uh, that's made out of iron and clay, and it's the foundation of the statue. Man's foundation at its very best. If we all came to a one-world government, which is, I believe, what man will try to do over time, It will be based on man's word with man, and ultimately it cannot last because men lie, and they break contracts, and they make agreements that they're not going to follow through on. And but that is in man's eyes, that's utopia. To the person that does not believe in God, if we'd all just work together and educate one another and stop fighting, then everything would come to the ultimate culmination of a utopian society with peace and joy and everything will be right. But that will never happen. That's what this prophecy says. It will never happen. But he says during the time of this, there will be another kingdom. He says, whereas you saw the feet and toes, verse 41, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom will be divided. And many believe that the ultimate kingdom that will come, that will be the undoing of all these kingdoms, will be a kingdom with ten toes, ten rulers, that will all get together and make an agreement. Now, a few years ago, people were saying, ah, it's going to be the European Union. And then here comes Jesus, right? Uh, I don't know if that's the case or not, but it will be a kingdom with 10 rulers, and those 10 rulers will make agreements with one another, and some of them will break those agreements. Verse 42, the, the toes of the feet were partly of iron and clay, so the kingdom shall be strong, partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all those kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, The great God has made known to the king that will come to pass after this. So we see this prophecy of a stone hewn out of a mountain, but it's hewn out of a mountain without hands. So I would submit to you, if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 28, there's a prophecy from the word of Isaiah. And Isaiah was a contemporary, by the way. He was alive at the same time 
as Daniel. And he writes there in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. So he talks about this, this stone that's hewn as a cornerstone. Now, if you're building a building out of stone, the cornerstone is the most important stone, and it's also the, the one that holds it all together. And this stone is being laid, he says, in Zion. Where's Zion? Mount Zion is where the temple is in Jerusalem. So we have this stone coming, and then there's another passage in Matthew chapter 21 where Jesus speaks about this stone. Matthew chapter 21 Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to another bearing the fruits of it. Whoever falls on this stone, look at this, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on Whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Sounds kind of like the imagery Daniel uses to describe these kingdoms being destroyed and made like chaff. Blown in the wind. Powder. Blown in the wind. No longer there, but destroyed. And I find this interesting because he says there, whoever falls on this stone, whoever humbles himself and bows down, he says this, (laughs) whoever falls on the stone will be broken. Now, we think of brokenness, and we think of something that's bad. But brokenness is actually how men and women can enter the kingdom of God, realizing their brokenness, allowing them to be broken to the point where they see they have a need. Brokenness is kind of a prerequisite for entering the kingdom of God. He says, whoever falls on the stone will be broken. Whoever falls onto it as his foundation But on whomever it falls, picture Daniel, this statue sitting there, and all of a sudden this stone is carved out of the mountain, and it comes down and lands and destroys and pulverizes this statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw will be ground to powder. The kingdoms of this world that we think will last forever will be ground to powder by the kingdom of God that is coming and has come. So, back to our text. He says this. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. So the only kingdom that's really left at the time that this stone comes will be the kingdom that has really remnants from the golden kingdom, the silver kingdom, the bronze kingdom. Their ideologies have been passed on from kingdom to kingdom. They've conquered those kingdoms, taken on the ideas they want, and we've come to the very culmination of what man is. Stone, excuse me, rock, excuse me, not rock or stone, but dirt mixed with iron. And that dirt, I think about it this way. Have you ever, you guys know anything about metal? When you take iron, which is very, very hard, picture it like this. You guys have silverware in your drawers. You got 
forks and spoons. Have you ever taken a fork and gone like this and bent it? When you bend it, it gets strain hardened. And when it gets bent over and over and over again, it gets very, 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 very hard. And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense because it breaks after you do that, right? If you've ever done that, you've seen it. And if you bend it enough times, it breaks. And you go, oh, then it got weaker. No, it got harder. That material gets strain hardened. It gets cold worked. The grains of metal become more solidified because of the heat that's generated in the bending. And then ultimately, it becomes so hard that it's brittle. Metal needs to be just hard enough, but also just soft enough so it doesn't break. But this metal iron is so hard that it crushes things, but it's also easy to fracture. And so this kingdom made out of dirt and iron is very strong in parts, and it's very weak in others. And when it finally breaks, the whole statue falls. All of man's ideas, all of man's kingdoms that have come to this culmination They're all pulverized. I don't care if you're in the United States. I don't care if you're in Africa, in a kingdom. I don't care if you're in Russia where it's, you know, I don't care where you're at. All of those kingdoms are man's kingdoms, and they will be destroyed by the kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God, Jesus came his first time as the lamb slain for the sins of the world. But when he comes the second time, he will come as a roaring lamb. He'll come as the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he will set up his kingdom, and he will be the rock that people will either bow down to, or they will be crushed and pulverized by. Let me ask you, what kingdom do you place your hope in? What kingdom do you put your trust in? If it's in the United States, it's going to be crushed. I don't care how godly our leaders or how ungodly they are. If Jesus is not the ruler then he's going to get rid of the other rulers. He's going to be the next sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar, in some ways, being the only sovereign, was a foretype of Jesus. Now, that sounds blasphemous, but he is going to be the only king, and all other kings will become part of his kingdom. Not as junior kings, not as vice presidents, but as submitted. And so, Every day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. So verse 46, notice King Nebuchadnezzar's response. He's just shown something pretty great. And I submitted to you last week that I don't think that Nebuchadnezzar even remembered his dream. Like sometimes when you have a dream and you wake up and like moments later you've forgotten it. I think he had forgotten it. And can you imagine him sitting there listening to Daniel going, wow. That's exactly what I dreamed. And I wondered what it meant. And now I know, he says in verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face on purpose. He prostrated himself before Daniel. He commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. Can you imagine Daniel being a worshiper of God? You shall have no other gods before me. And now all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar bows down to him and then He's commanding that incense would be burned before him. This is what we do in the temple. You, you don't worship me, worship God. And so he immediately deflects this. But the king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel. He gave him many gifts. He made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. 
and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, he set them over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. The gate wasn't just like he sat at the entrance. The gate was where all the decisions were made. It was the city council. It was the kingdom's council. It's where they would make decisions. It was where they would guard who would come in and who would not come in. But my point is, he was given great favor, and it says, truly is the God, is the God excuse me, truly God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. So where's the application in this? What do we take home from this? Let me submit to you, Daniel had told them, he had told Nebuchadnezzar up front, God's not revealed this to me because I'm the wisest in all the land. He hasn't revealed this to me because I'm something great. He's revealed it to me for my benefit, to keep me alive, and for your benefit, so you will know the answer to your question, where is my kingdom going? He said to him, God wants you to know your kingdom is short-lived, and the kingdoms after it will all be short-lived. They will not last but there is one kingdom that will stand forever, and that's God's kingdom. He's given you authority for a time, but it will be taken from you, and there will be others that will come after you. Life will not last forever. Your dominion will not go on forever. You will end. What are you going to do with eternity? So, as a result of Daniel being set apart and listening to his God and knowing and praying and spending that time with him, because of his personal relationship with the God of heaven. That's what makes this story great. Because as a result, he is able to interpret the king's dream, and he is also given more influence. To him who is given much, much will be required of him. But if a steward is faithful, he will be given more to be steward over. That's just, that's a scriptural principle. But because he gave glory to God... He was able to give the interpretation, and as a result of his personal relationship with God, he had let his light so shine before men that others would see his good work and not glorify Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, an ungodly man, glorified the God of heaven with his words. Now, he's not calling him Lord yet, but at this point, he's at least assenting to the fact that there is something to this God in heaven. And I don't know him, but I've seen the results of his reality. But that wouldn't happen if Daniel didn't spend time with his Lord and know him. Many times I I focus on Bible reading, and I focus on encouraging you guys to pray, and I focus on uh, encouraging you guys to fellowship with other believers. But if you guys personally, as individuals, don't have a relationship with Jesus and don't spend time knowing him, and fellowshipping with him, and listening for his word to speak to you personally, you won't ever have a word for the ungodly world. You won't ever have an impact on the society that you live in. You just won't. But if you will, you could be like Daniel in your life and speak to people that would never, on any other understanding, get to know what God's trying to speak to them. He's, He's the bridge between them. Daniel's the bridge between Nebuchadnezzar and the God of heaven. God comes down that bridge straight through Daniel's life into Nebuchadnezzar's life. Who does God want to speak to through your life? And how is he going to do it if you don't know what he would have to say? 
Let me uh, close with one uh, verse in John chapter 6. The disciples were in a similar situation. They had seen the works of God. They had just seen Jesus feed a multitude again. And in John chapter 6, there's a bunch of people following Jesus. And uh, everywhere he goes, they go. And Jesus answered and said to them, verse 26 of John chapter 6, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you that you're seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You got the, the bread that I gave you. He says, Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And they said to him, Well, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And of course, that would be our question. What, we, what must we do to work the works of God like Daniel did? Notice what he tells them. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. I believe in Jesus, but there are many times that I don't believe Jesus. Believe what Jesus said, try it out, test him on it, and see what he does. Who knows? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for the effectiveness of it when your Holy Spirit comes alongside and gives us understanding. Father, many of us are frustrated at times because we we know that you are real, we know that we've been saved by you, and yet we don't feel like we have the ability or the capacity to have an influence on those around us. Our enemies, those who don't believe in you, they scare us. We don't know how, we, we kind of kind of look at them as a lost cause. You know, what kind of impact can I have on them? But Father, if we will just simply believe you, believe in you, and follow you, and let you transform our lives, we can have an impact just like Daniel did. And so, Father, I pray for each one of us that you would, in fact, grow us in our knowledge and understanding and in the grace of God through our personal relationship with you. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and leave the results to you because we cannot have an impact just being ourselves. But if we will fall on the rock of Christ, we will not be put to shame. And you will show yourself mighty on our behalf and you'll reveal your character through us as we just faithfully live for you. So Father, give us a renewed desire to simply and honestly live for you not in our own power, but according to your riches as the Holy Spirit gives us the ability. Lord, may we let our light so shine before men that they may see what we do as a result of our relationship with you and give glory to the God of heaven who deserves it all. In Jesus' name, amen.